scripture reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, this is the Apostle Paul, opposed him to his face. <laughs> there you go. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, is the, who are from all different kinds of nationalities. That's what the word Gentiles means. But when they, those people from James and from Jerusalem, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the group of Christians who named Jesus as the Messiah, but who really focused on continuing the traditions of the Mosaic Law or the Torah. That's the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you've been living free in Christ, no longer according to the traditions of the Torah, but now that these Jewish folks came, you've changed your mind. You've acted hypocritically. That's what he's mean. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, even we know, that a person is not justified, is not declared righteous before God by works of the law, but through faith, or I would argue here, as we'll do in a couple of weeks, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. We're actually going to, I'm not going to just be unpacking those verses. We're going to be looking at an overview of the letter of Galatians uh, as a whole, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, thank you for leaving a witness to your authority, your desires, your will, and your grace. And one of those witnesses is this letter of Galatians. And so I pray that as we, as a, as a family of grace, as we sang this morning, as a church, as we begin to study and explore the themes and the structure and the commands and the promises and all these things in Galatians, we pray uh, that your grace would come to us, we would be empowered by your spirit uh, to live into and up to uh, the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Galatians. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have, you know, some of you have seen these little, I love these things, these scripture journals, okay? So this is the letter to Galatians. It's super thin. You know, when you actually hold it in your hands, you know, when you hold a big Bible in your hands, you're like, oh man, that's like huge. You hold Galatians, it's just this. It's just 15 minutes. You could probably read this uh, in 15 minutes, uh, probably, depending on how fast you want to read it. But um, So what I want to you know, do is just kind of start very simply with uh, you know, kind of recognizing the occasion, what's going on, why would we talk about this little letter to the Galatians church. 
and we'll see the occasion, we'll see that the gospel there is distorted. The good news about Jesus had come to that region faithfully, accurately, and powerfully, but very soon thereafter, it had been distorted. And so we'll look at the kind of distortions that happened, and we'll kind of trace that in the letter. And then uh, the way that Paul responds to that distortion is a good old-fashioned double-down. <laughs> you ever hear, you know, you know, you get confronted on something, and it's like, well, I got a couple of options. I could go a different way, or I could go this way, or I could double-down. Paul definitely doubles down on the gospel in Galatians. And so we'll see the gospel is distorted, and then we'll see how Paul doubles down on the gospel. And then to finish up, uh, and this is pretty typical of Paul's letters, the end of it is a very application heavy. And so we'll see how he anticipates the message of Jesus Christ being displayed by these various churches, because it wasn't just one church as we would think of it in Galatia. There's a group of churches that, that he and his team had planted. How he envisioned that they would display this good news of Jesus in that area of Galatia. So that kind of makes sense of the gospel displayed. And if you are, you know, kind of, if you have this, or you're, you're, a, you're a Bible writer uh, in your Bible person, um, you know, there's basically different ways you can break this down, but the general structure of the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, chapters 1 and 2 basically are Paul defending his gospel in the sense of its origin and things like that, uh, you know, where he got it from, how he didn't get it from other people, but it was actually from God. And then chapters 3 and 4 are Paul really uh, explaining his gospel. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the commands he gives after that. That's a very simple kind of lots of different scholars would generally agree with that very simple structure. So let's dive into this occasion, what's actually going on. And so it's written by the Apostle Paul. And so I know not everybody may even necessarily know who he is, but he's an apostle, which means that he is an official representative of Jesus Christ with authority over all the churches. Okay? These type of cats don't exist anymore. <laughs> They're all dead. They've all gone on to be with the Lord. But Paul was one of what would be called the Apostles, capital A Apostles. He had authority over all the churches. He was a little bit unique, not a little bit, he was the only Apostle who didn't walk with Jesus during Jesus' time in Israel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you won't find Paul there. Okay? He was in Tarsus, that's where he grew up. All right? And so that was a, a, a city in Asia Minor. And so he didn't have the, you know, kind of the privilege of walking and talking with Jesus during those years. However, he calls himself one born out of due time. You know, Paul was actually a, a kind of a stud, young Jewish scholar okay, in his day. And we'll see that in chapter 2 when we get there in a couple of weeks. And he knew about Jesus. He was a contemporary of Jesus. And he hated Jesus and Christianity, what was known as the way. I kind of wish we were still called the way. That'd be amazing. What, what, what religion are you? The way. <laughs> anyway, so he hated the way, and he was persecuting the way, and, you know, even, like, getting special permission, like, you know, eager beaver, brown-nosed kid, to go, like, persecute Christians outside of his jurisdiction, you know? And so on that journey to this uh, town called Damascus, he was he received this vision of the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ appeared to him. And there he saw and met Jesus face to face. And so he kind of has that. An apostle needed to see and the, personally the resurrected Jesus and be taught by him. And again, we'll see later Paul's biography in this letter that 
he received that vision and received that kind of instruction from Jesus over a period of time. So this is the Apostle Paul, and one of the things that happened to the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus when he met Jesus is that Jesus told him that you're going to take the message about my death and resurrection, my promised return, the good news about me, you're going to take that to all of these different nations, the Gentiles. He was commissioned to take this good news all over the world, basically, as far as he could go. And a lot of what you read in the book of Acts, and then a lot of these other epistles, are Paul being faithful to that command. One of the very first places that the Apostle Paul went was this area of Galatia. Okay? And so he went to you know, uh, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, which were these cities in Galatia, and there he preached the gospel. That's where these people first heard about this. Again, scholars are split. I, I think that Galatians was written very early because it was one of Paul's earliest you know, j- missionary journeys. Some people think it was later. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. But this is like Paul fulfilling his commission to go preach the gospel. This is one of the first places he preached it. After he left, then the trouble started. So he preaches the gospel here. You can read about this in Acts 13 and 14. The Jews, some of them believe, some of them don't. Lots of Gentiles believe. Some of the Jews are pretty mad. Paul leaves, and after he leaves, some of these Jewish Christians come in, and they start causing trouble. And so I read that in chapter 2 and verse 11. There was these men that came from James, and they were saying that you need to keep the law of Moses. And it specifically centered around three things. Circumcision for men, Food laws, you see here, when I read that with Peter, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were eating non-kosher foods. So Peter was reverting back to Old Testament food laws and then also probably calendar and Sabbath and things like that. And so what you have here is a, a group of young, fledgling churches who had received the message of Jesus Christ and of salvation by grace through faith in Him And then you have other Christians coming in who are saying, yes, we believe in salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to do these other things. That's what you have. And what's happening is it's troubling them. It's upsetting their faith. It's actually causing a real problem. Um, Paul says in chapter 5, he says that these people are unsettling you in chapter 5. And verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he's saying this teaching about adding to the good news of Jesus, these other things, is beginning to permeate. It's becoming a, a bigger and bigger problem. I have confidence in the Lord that you won't take another view. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And so that's basically the setup. Gospel went to this new area. It was powerful. Paul and his team left. Another brand of Christianity came in and was causing some real trouble. Now you might ask, how much trouble? Well, here's how Paul views it. If you have, you're going to be flipping around quite a bit. If you have one of these journals, get ready to bend some of the pages. In Galatians 1... Verse 6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different 
gospel. This error is so big, Paul calls it a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, actually, but there are some, and here he says it again, who trouble you and who want to distort, hence the main point number one here, the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven came and preached to you a gospel contrary to the one that was preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So this error is a very grave and serious error. Paul doesn't view this, you know, you can go to other passages in the New Testament where people have different views on certain things, specifically Romans 14 or 15, which, by the way, also has a lot to do with Jewish-Gentile issues. I think we forget we're so far removed. You guys probably need to, it's probably worth saying, Christianity was not viewed as Christianity originally. It was viewed as another sect or branch of Judaism. It would be quite a while, a generation or two, before the real distinction between Judaism and Christianity was really stark and obvious to everyone. This was still very much a Jewish faith, and specifically at this time, really early. Probably Paul's first letter, you know, is what I would argue. But anyway, so this problem is, you know, he views it as, like, you're accursed. Like, the gospel is no benefit to you. And I'm not saying that kind of like, that's kind of what I, my interpretation of it. Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 2, look, I like that, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So again, Romans 14 and 15, you know, you can have different, you know, ways of viewing things, that's fine, second, third rank issues. That's not what we're dealing with in Galatians. These people that were coming in were specifically saying that if you don't do these things, you cannot have confidence before God that you are righteous before him, nor can you identify yourself as a part of the people of God. It's a very strong uh, statement. I always think, why, why was that so appealing? I think we have to acknowledge that strict rules, the reason why some of us, myself included at times, although I fancy myself a bit of a free spirit, <laughs> but why do people like rules and clear boundaries? Because it gives you certainty. It gives you confidence. Oh, you did this, you're in. You didn't do that, you're not in. We like that. And Paul's gospel is not going to be exactly like that. But that's, what, that's, that's why this was so popular. A little leaven came into those churches, and the people were like, oh, that kind of makes sense, and they do agree with this and this and this. I mean, you could, these people that were coming into trouble, the Galatian churches, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God. They believed in the promises. They believed in the inheritance. They believed in the world to come. They believed in the resurrection. They believed so many of the same exact things that Paul believed, but it was like this one issue about Torah. Paul says that issue is enough in this particular case and application of it to be damnable. Oh, all right. And again, I try to be really self-aware. Like, you say that in a room full of people, like, I get it, like this. I mean, I'm not making it up. <laughs> That's what it says. There's a different gospel. Let them be accursed. So it's a big problem. You know, just like the nature of it is, is big. And then it's also a problem because 
it's, um, it's permeating the whole church. That's the whole leaven idea. So it's, it's, a pro- it's a big problem in and of itself, but maybe there's only a couple people who are being influenced by this really big deal. Nope. <laughs> it's spreading through all the churches. So it's a big problem that's getting bigger in Galatia. And then it's also a big problem. we got to just kind of know this before we go to Paul's solution when he doubles down on the gospel. It's a problem theologically, like how they view themselves, how they view God, how they view the law. But it's also a problem horizontally, or we could say sociologically, because it was leading to exclusion. That's why I read the Peter analogy, or the Peter story in here. Here you got these, which that's another reason why it's such a big problem. This problem went all the way up to Peter, who's like the leader of the church. If he gets it, I mean, you, we have a totally different Jesus movement if this confrontation doesn't happen between Paul and Peter. It's another reason why this problem is so big, because it's gone all the way up to Peter. But you see in that Peter-Paul uh, situation, Peter's theology wasn't bad. Peter's practice was bad. The word actually in Greek there is orthopraxy. You know, we have the word orthodox, which means, is your doctrine orthodox? Do you agree on all the right theological points? And of course we say about Peter, yes. But his behavior was so bad that it was actually undermining his good theology. And so the danger here is that we can have very good theology, but we can actually undermine, you know, and in a severe way, to the extent that Christ will no longer be an advantage to us. Actually, chapter 5 says you've fallen away from grace. I mean, it's strong language in Galatians here. Because of the way that we treat others and we exclude certain people from fellowship. You might not think that, oh, if I, don't, if I want to separate from these people, it's not really a big deal. And Jesus and Paul under the authority, uh, Paul under the authority of Jesus saying, no, that's a big deal. You start treating certain brands of Christians like they're outsiders because they don't keep your standards and your rules, and you are dangerously close to Christ being of no advantage to you. Christianity is both radically exclusive and radically inclusive. Exclusive, we sang it this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. He's the doorway in. (laughs) But once you're in, once you're in, Galatians 3.28, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, you're all one in Christ. And it's radically then inclusive. We'll get to that. So that's the problem. Church is planted, gospel of free grace, Jewish Christians, these weren't non-Christians, Christians came in, distorted the gospel by adding Torah observance to it, and it caused massive problems in the church, theologically, sociologically, with the laity, with the leaders. It was pervasive, and it could lead to God's ultimate curse and condemnation. So what does Paul do in response? Secondly, Paul doubles down on the gospel. He doesn't go anywhere else. He's, he doesn't have a different message. He's just like, I got one message, there's one note that I sing, and I'm going to play it louder now. <laughs> it's kind of his approach. And he says, O foolish Galatians, in chapter 3 and verse 1, who's bewitched you? Who tricked you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so Paul reminds them that he and his team had come there and clearly preached to them who Jesus was and what he did in dying and rising again and what that meant. And we're going to spend a number of weeks, obviously, unpacking this, but again, this is an overview, so let me preview it with a few things. First, and I read this in the beginning, in chapter 2, he talks about this issue of being justified before God. The word justified means to be declared righteous before God. Not that you do right things, like here and there, like it's, it's not kind of like a moment-by-moment idea. Justification has the idea of I'm either in this state, this circle, I'm right with God, or I'm in this circle over here, I'm not right with God. It's, it's much more like marriage. It's like I'm either married, <laughs> this circle, or I'm not married. It's a state. And so justification uh, is like, are you in the state of being righteous before God, or are you be in the state of being unrighteous before God? And Paul reminds them that the way that you get into the state of being justified, you didn't get in there by the works of the law. And he reminds them of this in chapter 3. He says, you guys, your theology is actually bad. It's wonky. You guys don't remember how the law functioned. Don't go, you know, go read the first part of your Bible. Did Israel ever keep the law? No. <laughs> they ended in exile. And in fact, at the writing of this, they were still in exile under Rome. So they can never keep the law, he reminds them. He says that the law wasn't supposed to do that. The law was supposed to show you your sinfulness, and it was also supposed to protect Israel just enough until the Messiah would come who would set you free from the law. And so he says that justification to be declared righteous before God comes to you by grace, through faith, apart from the works of the law. And so you've got this beautiful, I mean, justification is... One of the kind of gems, when you think about you know, all the things that you have through your salvation in Christ, justification is certainly one of the most beautiful gems, to have the confidence before God that you are right before him, not based on your own works. So they have justification. But one of the things, I actually think these opponents believed in justification by grace, to some extent. They would say, yes, you're justified by grace through faith, but then they just added. And so it was actually subtraction by addition. But they would agree to a certain point that, yes, you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died on the cross for your sins. They would believe all that. But they said, Paul, if your gospel is true and there's no more law, then these people who now identify with the people of God are going to live like the devil. If you don't give them a law, their behavior is not going to be controlled. And so, and this is actually their argument, this is actually something Paul faced regularly. You can see it also happening in Romans. This is chapter 2 and verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ the servant of sin? I love this now. This this is really good. Justification, you could say, is how you get in, into Christ, into the family of God, into the circle of righteousness, you could say. It's not like, well, how do you stay in with any kind of credibility? If it's just free grace, 
then these people are going to be sinners. And Christ's gospel will actually promote sin. I can live how I want, fulfill the desires of my flesh, and I'm still right with God, so I'll just keep sinning. <laughs> That's what their argument was. And Paul says, no, no, you don't get, it's not just justification by grace through faith. There's also this reality of incorporation. And Paul goes on to say in verse 18, he says, Certainly not. Christ is not the servant of sin. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That's called incorporation. The, Paul's gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins so that you could, and rose again so that you could be declared righteous. His gospel is also now in Christ, through faith in Christ, you died with Christ. There's a part of you that died. I was explaining this to a, a, a friend of mine, a newer Christian, and it, something, you know, it was helpful for me, actually, as <laughs> so I was telling him. There's a part of you that's spiritual, emotional, psychological, and intellectual, right? And when you die, and you know, people come to your funeral, and if they were to look at, you know, if, you know, if they were to look at your body there, none of those things would be there, right? That part of you, however you want to call that, your heart, your spirit, your soul, I don't know, whatever you want to call that, okay? That part of you died with Christ. And then, Paul says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and as we'll see, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit comes and is united to that, that dead part of you, and now you're alive. That's actually, I think, the, so far in my life, the clearest way I can explain that. Something happened to you, you just weren't declared righteous, but that spiritual, psychological, mental, emotional part of you, something happened in there. It was crucified with Christ, and then that part of you was raised to new life in Christ. And so now there's life throbbing in there. And so Paul says, because of that new life, which as we talked about last week, Jesus is a life-giving spirit. In chapter 5, we see he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then what is produced in that kind of a person's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Not automatically, but as we give ourselves to the person and work of Jesus again and again, then what happens over time is the Spirit of Jesus rises in our life, and then Paul says, with that type of spirit, you don't need a law. You don't need to try to control people's behavior with the Torah and with circumcision or with dietary laws or with this or with that, because Jesus' Spirit Himself resides. I mean, what could be better? A list of rules, Ten Commandments, as good as they are, nowhere near as powerful and as effective as the Spirit of Jesus living inside of you. <laughs> I think this church needs to get more charismatic. If your Christian life is not, maybe I'll say it this way, pneumatic, it's the Greek word for spirit, the whole Christian experience is by the presence and power of the Spirit. 
And so Paul's saying, you guys don't get my gospel. Oh, if it's free grace, then people are going to live like the devil. No, it's free grace. You're justified, yes, but then you also are incorporated into the very life of Jesus by his spirit. And then, just for good measure, (laughs) he goes through a whole bunch of other things about the gospel that are just so good. Justification, yes. Incorporation, yes. But then, look with me in chapter 3 and verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the nations. Paul's proving from their experience, chapter 3, 1 through 5, and now from the Old Testament, chapter 3, 7 through 4, 7, that his gospel about justification by grace alone is right. And so he says, look at Abraham. How did God's blessing come to Abraham? It came to him through faith, and Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. And so all of the Gentiles get blessed by faith in Christ Jesus, and he says, so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? It's not like you're like, oh man, I'm so glad today that I have the blessing of Abraham on my life. This is why biblical knowledge, is, I felt like today was going to be a little bit more teaching, which is fine. The blessing of Abraham is nothing short of than the restoration of creation blessing to the world. That's all. When God made the world, he blessed it. Mankind rebelled. You know, he sent him out, cursed him, and then went to the flood, and he blessed Adam, or excuse me, blessed Noah, who's like another Adam, by the way, and they fell and rebelled, and Tower of Babel came, and God's like, man, what do I got to do to bless this world? <laughs> Call Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole world through Abraham. And so if you have faith in Christ, you get a whole world kind of blessing. So justification, incorporation, you get redemption, the, the purchase, the forgiveness of your sins. And then just one more, and for sake of time, we've got to move on to close. Look at chapter 4. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. This is who you are at the deepest, most intimate level of your life now, is that the spirit of Jesus has adopted your spirit into the family of God. And now you have access to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. Every day access, all the time access. It's so great. It's just silly to even say it's so great. What are we even, I mean, we're talking about, I said this today in the beginning. This happens to me quite a bit. It's like I'm just living my life. I'm just kind of doing my thing, minding my own business, trying to love my wife and my family, doing all that. And then all of a sudden, I just interact with this Bible and this gospel, and I'm just like, this is so big. This is so powerful. This is so wonderful. I barely feel like I can live into it. Access to God, the deepest level of who I am, that I can pray anytime. Asking him to meet my needs, asking him for strength, asking him for wisdom. Everything that you would ask a good and godly father about, he's there all the time. And then beyond that, I have an inheritance. It's like, come on. And so Paul doubles down on his gospel, and he's saying, this other gospel is weak. It's, it's of the flesh. It doesn't produce. Did you ever get the spirit 
because you kept the Sabbath? Did you ever get the Spirit because you had your son circumcised? Did you ever get the Spirit because you obeyed some one of the commandments? And Paul's answer is no, no, no. Did you ever get the Spirit because you got down on your knees and you said, Lord Jesus, I give myself to you? And the answer is yes! If you want to experience the presence and power of the Spirit, that's the rhythm. I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. Grant me, fill me with your Spirit. That's the process. So the gospel was distorted. Paul doubled down on it. And now let me just briefly finish with the display. I have two minutes left. This is why overviews are nice. We'll talk about this more. First thing I want to mention, really just two things. Look at chapter 4 and verse 19. This is... Paul's pastoral heart, and it has certainly shaped mine. As I look at Galatians, if you were to ask me, like, what's one of the main things you want New City Church and myself personally to get out of this whole next 12 to 13 weeks? And there's lots of great stuff in here, and I pray that God shows us all lots of things. This would be the near the top of my list, though. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. The gospel displayed is nothing short than the very life of Jesus shaping my life. Again, I love our song of illumination. Shape and fashion. Christianity, you don't go shape Jesus. You meet Jesus and he shapes you. You're conformed to Jesus which means some stuff's got to go. Some stuff that was straight's got to get bent. Some stuff that's bent's got to get straightened. He wants to shape you like you can think of a clay uh, spinning wheel or you're, the trials and successes and all the things of your life and Jesus' hands are on you and he is shaping you. It's an intensely spiritual and then consequently practical existence as a Christian. I just want to say that so much. It's not just about right and wrong. It's about being shaped by the very person of Jesus. That's Christianity. And so when you think about displaying it, it starts in the heart where you're believing on Jesus, you're beholding Jesus, and he is shaping you into his image. And that looks like you get a very helpful description in the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. You know, the works of the flesh. Anger, division, idolatry, uh, sexual promiscuity. All of that stuff, eh, not the shape of Jesus. Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Oh, that's Jesus. So it's, a, it's super practical. You know, I've said this before. If, if you have, you know, and I, I, just, I just did this in my own heart. It's like this weekend I had issues where it was like I was angry, I was frustrated, I was envious, and it was like, what's going on? That's not Jesus. And so, Jesus, I repent of that, and now I'm asking you to shape me into love, joy, and peace by your Spirit. And so it's just like, <laughs> this is one of the great things about Christianity. Are you happy? No? Okay. <laughs> what do you need to get rid of? <laughs> anyway, and then lastly, there's one other, you know, it's interesting, Paul says you shouldn't obey the Torah law, but then in chapter 6 and verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
And so what happens now in the letter of Galatians is that Paul is saying, hey, you don't actually need the Torah anymore because you have the Spirit of Christ in you, and the Spirit of Christ will tell you things to do. And specifically, the primary thing he's going to tell you to do is to love other Christians and then love other people. And we get into this radical inclusion once you're in Christ. Love everybody. Bear one another's burdens. You know, he says later, you've been called to freedom. Now, through your freedom, serve one another. He says, share with one another. He says, share with those who teach you the word. He says, all of these different ways that you would love and care for people in the community. Actually, in chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, so then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, (laughs) especially those who are of the household of faith. And so Paul's like, I don't need an extra law. I've got the spirit of Jesus who is going to fulfill the command of Jesus, which is to love one another the way Jesus has loved me. That's the ultimate display of the gospel. And that's the only thing that really matters. Look at chapter 6, and two, two, one in chapter 5 and one in chapter 6, and I'll close. Chapter 5 and verse number 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What counts? Only faith working through love. I believe in Jesus to get in and to stay in. That belief in Jesus, that vertical theological situation, leads to a horizontal sociological situation where I then love the people around me the way Jesus has loved me, and that's the only thing that counts. Wow! That's it, New City. Are you believing in Jesus and loving your brothers and sisters? I love the simplicity of it. That's the only thing that counts. And then when people come into that kind of a community, they're like, whoa, they're radically Jesus-centered, which is maybe a little weird to me, but man, do they care about each other. (laughs) That actually is a witness to the new creation. 6.15, he uses the same type of logic. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You want to get a witness to what the new world is going to be like? The new world is going to be like filled with people whose devotion and loyalty is to Jesus and Jesus alone, and they know it's just by grace. No one's going to be in heaven going, yeah, I knew I was going to get here. Nobody. And then it's going to be filled, as Jonathan Edwards says, it'll be a world filled with love. Everybody looking to serve and honor and prefer one another. That's the best kind of world. That's the world that's coming. And here at New City, we get to be a foretaste of it. So let's lean into faith in Jesus Christ, love for one another by the power of the risen spirit of Jesus. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that it's free and thank you that it leads to our freedom. Help us to stand firm in that freedom and to really love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.